Um, <clears throat> as she mentioned, I, I felt that in the next phase of my life that I wanted to put together a discipling tool because that's what my whole ministry, almost nearly 50 years of ministry, being in ministry, has been to dis making disciples of men. I, I knew that purpose right when I got saved when I was 18, 19 years old as a young teenager, and I had my first encounter with teaching. I had a room full of um, young teenagers uh, in a small church that was in a one-room schoolhouse in Harper Woods, and they gave me the, the booklet and says, go ahead, you can teach them. And I was newly saved, and I began to teach them, and I studied that word passionately to give to those kids. And from that moment on, I just fell in love with digging into the word and knowing what it is and, be, and becoming, know it, and, and studying what it was to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I believe that, that we have that ministry. And I encourage people, man, in the world that you live in, you have people that you touch and that you and only you can touch and get through to. And you have assignments, we have assignments all around us. And we can just simply open our homes, open our hearts, open up a lot of things in our lives to be, and, and to reach out to people. Uh, obviously, the, these times have, have given us opportunity to become very, very creative and very, very open with people as they open our hearts to us, and I want to jump into something because I want to teach on a, on a on one of the core values that I believe are of the kingdom that's going into the next volume. This this book has three volumes to it. In the next volume, this particular core value or cultural value will be in it, and uh, I want to jump right into this because I'm just excited about. Why is my wife calling me? All right, and she knows where I'm at. All right. Anyway, let's just set that aside. <laughs> and um, we'll get into this, okay? <clears throat> so today we're going to talk about the, the core value of righteousness. And I want to start off by um, asking you three questions. And these particular questions will will be in the evaluation page on, uh, in that book, okay? First of all, how do you define righteousness? How do you define righteousness? You don't have to, you may want to write it down and answer it to yourself sometime later. <clears throat> Number two, do you feel you have a core value that defines why and how you are righteous before God? What makes you righteous? How and why? And then number three, do you struggle with the feeling you have to work really hard to do good in order for you to feel God accepts you and you are right with him? A lot of people struggle with that last question. I see a lot of head shaking, nodding. Hopefully today we'll be, make bring a lot of clarity to this and maybe answer the question and hopefully find freedom in what you learn today or hopefully I want you to learn something today I want you to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit not just my voice but the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you with regards to this 
Because there are a lot of people out there that feel that them doing good and working hard at doing good is how they can stand righteous before God. And I'm here to tell you that that's a lie. That is an absolute lie. It is not our goodness that makes us righteous, as we're going to find out. It's not our goodness. Within the kingdom of God, what you believe is more important than how you behave. You say, well, whoa, wait a minute. You mean what I believe is more important than how I behave? Well, look at what Jesus did. He walked around. He wasn't walking around doing behavior modification to people as he walked the earth. Was he? He was, he was, he was challenging people in their belief systems. What do you believe? And he started with the top and he worked his way down. He challenged the belief, and that doesn't stop today. He challenged our belief systems. And we have, in order to live in the kingdom of God, the way that Jesus taught it, we have to have a kingdom belief system that he taught, not what religion has taught us, but what he taught us. And it will joggle and it will jar our belief systems. Our belief systems have to change as we grow and mature. It is a sign of maturity in our life when we grow in our belief systems. It's, it has to happen. We have to grow. I've changed my beliefs about certain things several times in my life. Well, what were you like? Like, you weren't sure of yourself back then? No. It's, I began to, I matured as a Christian. I matured in, in, in the kingdom of God. And, I, and as I found out more and more, we, if we stop learning, man, you know, we don't come to the end of learning. Eternity, we're going to find out things about God. It's going to take eternity for us to find everything about God. And eternity is eternity, folks. It never ends. But that's how vast he is. It's hard for our mind to comprehend that. Within the, okay, starting with John the Baptist right up to Jesus' ascension to, into heaven, the message of the new covenant that was being introduced was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It transitioned to it is here. And then it transitioned to it's within you. That all happened from John the Baptist right on through to his ascension. Started with, it's at hand. John came preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. Then Jesus, as he started out, says, the kingdom of God is here. And as he progressed along, and, he, and they began to grab a hold of his teachings, he began to say, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is in, within each one of us. The potential to live out the kingdom resides not out here, but right within here. We get to live the kingdom right in here. And that's what makes it so amazing that it translates into our everyday life. And there, there was there maybe about 30 people, 35 people in here? There's 35 different manners of life in here. And that all translates differently, but it all comes from the same source. It all comes from the same source.
And that's the Holy Spirit that he left us. The Holy Spirit challenges us to align and bring our belief systems in line with God and his word. They are one and the same. God and his word are one and the same. You don't differentiate himself. This is, we call this the word of God, but it is a portion of the word of God. Okay? It contains certain elements that have been decreed as the canon of the scriptures. But the things that you hear Holy Spirit speak to you in your heart is the word because God is speaking, right? That's his word, okay? And we confirm those things or we back those things up or we qualify those things so that we don't think that we're just kind of like losing our minds or, or we get to see, we line them up with this or we measure them against this. I don't say we line them up with it, we measure it against that, okay? You know, it even says in the, in the end of, of the book of Revelation that they couldn't write all the books to contain everything that Jesus represented and did while he was walking. There couldn't be enough books written to contain it all. In that short period of time that he walked the face of the earth. The Holy Spirit challenges us uh, to do that. And we have to come and understand that it's through repentance. That is, changing the way we think. That's the definition of repentance. Changing the way we think. Just to show you the difference between understanding how Jesus taught and what religion taught us. Repent, religion taught us that repentance is, is being sorry for your sins. Go repent. When Jesus told him, told him to go repent and, and, and John told him to go repent, he was saying, listen, go change the way you're thinking. Allow the Holy Spirit, allow the things that I'm telling you to challenge and change the way you're thinking right now because the way you're thinking is the first avenue to changing your belief system. Change the way you think. You know, one of my mentors from years ago, now passed on to go to be with the Lord, he would say this, change isn't changed until it's changed. We could talk about change, but change isn't changed till it's changed. Change the way you think. Your thinking ain't going to change until you change the way you think. It just isn't going to happen. The operative word in that is what? Change. And we are all, including myself, resistant to change. We like status quo. We like the way things are. You know why? Because there's security in that. But man, we have entered in some times where these were opportunities, if we're tuning into what the Spirit Spirit was speaking and saying right from the beginning, a year ago, when all this stuff started happening, a little over a year ago, there were some grand opportunities for us to change. People, you know, and even the world's saying, things aren't going to be the same. Things have changed and will change. 
continue to change. And this is a great time to be proactive in our thinking of how, what, God, what kind of changes God wants us to make so we can have the best results in sharing Jesus and becoming the best version of Jesus to the people we're trying to meet. And one of the things is we have great opportunities to get together in small groups and you become, you open your home and just meet some people within your immediate family or your neighborhoods that you've wanted to reach with the gospel. Great time right now. We don't have to invite them to church because a lot of churches still aren't even opened yet to their fullest. But go ahead and invite them in. Do it. And see what God does with you. We're all given the ministry. It's part of, part of my passion is telling and encouraging people. Everybody in this room has a ministry, and it's the ministry of reconciliation. Telling people that they are reconciled. There's a way to be reconciled with God. <clears throat> Some real quick observations about change. We have to be willing to change in order to mature and grow. You're not going to grow without changing. You're not going to mature without changing. It's just the natural process. If your body didn't change, you would not have matured physically as a person, okay? You'd still look like a one-year-old, you know, if you didn't change, all right, or a newborn. Resist, we have to resist the temptation to stay the same. Remaining, we need to repeat this to ourselves. Remaining stagnant is not a safe place. Remaining stagnant is not a safe place. It can get you in trouble if you're not moving. Stagnant water is not good water to drink. Moving water, water that's flowing, you have a better chance of it being cleaner. You know, everybody talked about, just quick example, everybody talked about like the Detroit River being dirty because of all the dumpage that goes into it from a lot of the industry downriver. I went to Belle Isle one day, this is years ago, I went to Belle Isle one day and I'm looking and I go, man, this water's clear. You know why? Because there's an eight mile an hour or more current that goes through that river. And I forget how, how that river turns over, how often it turns over its water, the volume of water that goes through it. Moving water, changing lives have a better chance of, of attaining and flowing in life. But not all change equals growth. But we have to grow. We have to change in order to grow. Just because you're changing doesn't mean necessarily you're growing because you could be changing in the wrong direction. Okay. It's like somebody said, all you have to do is work hard to be a success. So the guy went out, got a shovel, and started digging holes in his garage, in the backyard. Okay? Just because you worked hard doesn't mean you become a success. You have to work hard in the right direction. Okay. Most change, this is the part that we really don't like. Most change in life is usually initiated by trauma or crisis. Most people in this room got saved, came to the Lord Jesus Christ sincerely in their heart, gave their lives over to Christ. 
because they had a crisis in their life or something traumatic was happening at the moment and you gave it over. Nothing wrong with that. It lets us know that God orchestrates and uses everything in our life for our betterment. Great message last week, if you missed it by Drew, on how he talked about how our past is just as much as a part of the process of our understanding and knowing our purpose as the present and the future is. And that we need to watch and see how God took some of those defining moments in our life and used them as divine appointments in our life and it helped us get a good picture of purpose in our life. And, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. You begin to look, and I can look back at my life, and I can actually see back past in my life all the spots that God was, was, was poking me like Paul was being poked by, by the Spirit of God. Paul was being poked at different points in his life by the Spirit of God to come to him, poking him, poking him, till one day he knocked him flat down and he got his attention. And this is what the first things he said to Paul was this in the book of Acts. He said, Paul, Paul, how long are you going to kick against the pricks? What kicking against the pricks is the oxes, when they're plowing the field, in order to get them going and get them moving, they had a blade on one end, they would clean out their hoofs and get the stones out of their hoofs with, out of the ox goad. And on the other hand, it was real pointy. And they tag them with that to get them moving. And they got tagged in there behind, and it got them moving. And that's all Paul, God was telling him. How long... There was a defining moment here and a defining moment there and a defining moment here that you resisted. And finally, as, as part of his whole history, God pazowed him. And he could have walked away from that and said, I just had a bad pizza, piece of food that day. Or he, he could have responded in the way that he did. And thank God he did. Okay. John 16.33 says, In this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, because what? There you go. He says, I have overcome the world. So there isn't a trauma or a crisis that comes into our life that we can't overcome and we can't get through if we hold on to whom we believed and we allow ourselves to grow through that process thinking of people right now that I know of that there are, they are in some real, real difficult times with family and different things and it's like God is there with them and they can, they can throw up their hands and they can point their fingers and say, God, you said and you said and you said or they could say, God, they can throw up their hands and say, God, I thank you that you are walking with me through this and that I'm going to get out on the other side of this a better person than I was when I first started. I'm going to get there. Amen. I'm getting there. We have to change. So let's jump into this. Matthew chapter 22. Let's all turn there. That all was an introduction into why, where we're going with righteousness. It was to get us to understand that 
that we have to change the way we think about righteousness, especially if we battle with that third question. We may not know how to define righteousness. We may not feel like, I never thought I really had to have a core value of righteousness. I just, you know, just thought it was a part of being a Christian. Okay, Matthew 22, uh, what did I say? Matthew 22, verse 15, okay, or 1 through 15. We're going to read that in a moment. I'm going to give you a backdrop that starts with going over to chapter 21. We're not going to read all of this. I'm going to make reference to this because I want to lay the backdrop so that we understand when we read this, what is the context we're reading this in, okay? All right, so in chapter 21, we see Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's the first time that Jesus allowed himself to be hailed the king of the Jews. They made this grand and pompous celebration like they would for a king who just conquered his enemy and was now coming back into the city to celebrate the great victory they had. This is what they would do with a natural king that won a battle. They would lay out the palms. They'd throw flowers around. They'd have a grand celebration, and they would hail the king victorious. And that's what they did with Jesus when he came in. Okay, immediately Jesus goes into the temple and he does something that is totally out of the ordinary of his character up until that point. He goes in and starts throwing tables over. He starts overturning things and he says, you have made my house, the temple of the Lord, that should be a house of prayer, a house of meeting God, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Okay? He comes out of that scene, okay, and he leaves. Okay, after these two events, Palm Sunday, him allowing them to hail him as king, and overturning the temple in Jerusalem, overturning the tables in the temple uh, in Jerusalem, the Pharisees begin to hit him hard and heavy with this statement. By what authority do you do these things? They seen that he had done something that was out of his character that he normally wouldn't have done. You never seen that kind of response out of Jesus in a situation. But because the timing was right and everything was aligning up not with stars or anything like that. It was aligning up with the purpose in the plan of God. God released it at that moment because it was leading into him being arrested and then being crucified, okay? So, so they said, by what authority do you do these things? Let's jump down to Matthew 21 and 27. When they asked him that a question, okay, by what authority do you do these things in 23 of chapter 21, he answered the question with a question. He says, when John was preaching, did he do it of men or was it of God? Was John sent of men or was John sent of God? And the Pharisees said, mm-hmm. If we say that he was sent of men, 
we're going to have a riot on our hands. Because all the people believed that he was sent of God. If we say that he's sent from heaven, he'll just tell us, well, why aren't you listening and doing what he told you to do? Hmm. <clears throat> Master or teacher, we don't know. <laughs> I can imagine saying, yeah, right, you don't know. Within himself. Yeah, right, you don't know. You know exactly right. Well, if you don't know, neither can I tell you by what authority. I do He left it at that. Okay? Verse 23. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. As soon as he says that, he rolls off into another parable. It's the parable of the two sons. Real simple. A father had a vineyard. He had a, a place, you know, a farm. And he asked his one son to go into, go out and work in, on the farm. He says, no, I'm not going to go. But after a while, he had a change of heart, and he went. He went to the other son and asked him, go, will you please go out and work in the farm? And he said, yeah, I'll go. But he never went. And he poses this question to him. Who did the will of the father? And they said, the first one. The one who said he wouldn't go, but after a while, changed, his, changed the way he thought. He changed the way he thought and went and worked. He was hitting these guys right at the core. He basically called him out. He says, you're like the Pharisee who said he would go, but didn't go. That's what he was called. And the ones that are changing the way they're thinking are doing the will of the Father. The ones that are repenting. Because that's the word he used. And he answered and said unto him, I will not. But afterward he repented. In verse 29, that son repented, changed the way he thought, and went. And the second said he would go, but didn't go. And they said, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Holy mackerel. He hit them between the eyes. He hit them right, he gave them one pow, right between the eyes. I mean, the boldness of that guy to talk, you're, you're talking about the leaders of the Jewish people. A person that he should not be talking to like, like that. But he was talking to them like that because they were the blind, leading the blind, and they were all falling in the ditch. He was there to get them out of the ditch. He was there to be the king of the Jews, to deliver them from themselves, not from Rome. He had to deliver themselves from them. They had to deliver them from themselves. They were their worst enemy, not Rome. They're religious, the way they were living, so religious, 
was more detrimental than Rome was. He said the publicans and the harlots are going to come into the kingdom before you. Because you're like the son who said you'd go, but didn't. You're not doing the will of the father. It's basically what he told them. He did it in such a slick. He, you know, maybe some of it went zing right over their head. I don't know, but I don't believe so. These guys were smarter than that. They were smarter than that. Now, let's go to the parable of the marriage feast. We're talking about righteousness here now, okay? We're talking about righteousness. Let's begin to read. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king. All right, let's back up real quick. There was one more parable before that, and that was the parable of the householder. And basically the parable of the householder was about a guy who had a vineyard. Uh, He uh, needed to, uh, he rented it out. And, uh, and had people work it, and he wanted to get people to come in. And, and, time, he, he, and when the time of the fruit of the, uh, drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen, verse 34, that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants, and they slew them and beat them and stoned them. These were like, they represented like the prophets and the, the, the patriarchs of the old covenant, people that, the righteous people of the old covenant. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did it unto them likewise. But at the end, he sent his son. And his thinking is this, they'll reverence my son. Now, can I ask you something? I, I guess in my thinking, if the guy's son came and said, this belongs to my father, and they thought that by, and I thought that by killing him, I'm going to put an end to this. I don't think so. I think he was just going to get the father that much more upset. But they actually thought this. That's the deception of getting caught up in self righteousness. And basically, he was pointing towards them at the last part of that. He was pointing right at the, you're like, you are there. You're Pharisees, you're going to kill me. He was kind of being prophetic in his, in his, in his parable there. But you're them. Because guess what? At the end of that, in verse 45, and when the, I'm really paraphrasing this, if you want to really get the whole gist of it, just read it on your own. But let's go down to verse 45. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard his parables, Parables, plural, not just this one, but the one about what? The one about the, the two sons, right? We, we covered the parable about the two sons, and then, you know, the, um, the whole thing on John the Baptist uh, dialogue that went on there. When he heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. Well, thou perceivest right. I was talking about you. He's cutting to the chase here. He knows. 
He's got to cut to the chase because it's coming, it's coming down to D-Day here. And he's trying to get as many people into the kingdom as he can. And this is what, this is the way he was going to jar some of these guys thinking. Okay? But when they sought to lay hands on him, they were going to grab him right then and there. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't quite lined up yet. A few more things had to happen. They feared that they'd have a riot on their hands. So they backed off. Okay? So now we get into the parable of the marriage feast. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Beautiful. Probably was going to be a great time. And sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And they wouldn't come. What an insult. The guests that were invited decided they weren't going to come. Well, who were those people? Well, it was the chosen people of Israel. It was all the Jewish nation that was invited to come. But as a whole, they chose not to come. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden. Okay, and they didn't come. Again, he sent forth other servants. Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I've prepared my dinner and my oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated him spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard of, uh, of thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and he destroyed these, those murderers and burned up their cities. Okay? And that's, if you follow the history of the Jewish people, they were constantly in turmoil, being invaded by people. Again, he's talking of the history of the Israeli people or the Jewish people, the Hebrews of that time, and how the turmoil they were in, up and down, up and down, being conquered by this, being taken away captive by that person. So he's giving them a slight history lesson here now. But it's all going to come home. But they made light of it, okay. And the remnant took his servants, and, okay, we already read that. Uh, then said he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye find, bid to the marriage. That's you and I. That's the Gentile nations. They are bidden to come to the marriage. We're all bidden to come. Come. I've got a wedding with, with my son who's getting married to his church, okay? He's getting married. Come to the wedding. And they came. We all came. We all came to the wedding. Okay. <clears throat> Go ye therefore into the high... Okay, so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together and all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see... This whole thing takes a big turn now here. And it may seem kind of... Wow, what the heck happened here? And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Wow. 
And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. You have to understand something. We're talking a Jewish wedding here. If you know anything about Jewish wedding customs of that ancient world, if you were a guest to the wedding, I mean, these things were elaborate. They lasted like weeks sometimes. All right? And you were provided, when you came to the wedding, you were provided by the host a wedding garment. And if you didn't put that wedding garment on in there, you insulted the host. You insulted the host when you didn't put the wedding garment on. So keep that in mind as you read the rest of this. He was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot, Take him away, cast him out into utter darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. That verse 14 literally reads like this. For many are called, but few have chosen. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his words or in his talk. He was hitting them again, now with the left hook. Okay? All right? However, what really got a hold of me was always puzzling me for the, for the longest time when I read that, why on earth would he take this guy who we invited off the street to come in and then treat him like that? that does, that's not like the nature of God to do that. There's got to be a reason. There's got to be a reason. Well, one of the reasons is you can't, you cannot refuse to put on the garment to come to his wedding. It's his wedding, you put on his garment. It's an insult, okay? But that's okay. I get that. I get that. All right? The man represented people who become believers and insist that the works they do is what makes them righteous. That's how he treats people who think either purposely or maybe in a false humility way, that my works somehow makes me accepted by God and is good enough to put me in the presence of God. You know what it's telling me? It's telling me the minute we say that is that Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross plays second fiddle to our goodness. Our goodness, self-righteousness. Definition of self-righteousness is not just walking around haughty and thinking you know it all and have all the answers to everything. Self-righteous is putting your good works above 
what Jesus did at the cross. Now you're sitting here, I'm really confused. What are you talking about? That's how he treats the good things that I do? If you are banking on that as the reason why you are to be allowed into the kingdom and the doors be open and say, come in, good and faithful servant, into the, the, into the throes of the Lord? Yes. You're mistaken. That's not how we get accepted before God. That's not how we stand righteous before God or why I stand here today and say I am righteous before God because of the good things that I've done. No. How many people have heard this in your discourse with people? <clears throat> All I have to do is be good, good, and my good outweigh the bad, and I'll make it. Wow. That's in essence, <laughs> you're getting ready to be bound up, hand and foot, and thrown out of the wedding. If that's what you think is going to get you there. Now, I don't say that, because I, I really don't believe there's people in here that believe that, but maybe you do. I don't know. But, but if you struggle with the idea, I have to be good enough, well, hopefully this will help clear things up. Because if, I, if it's not me being good enough, then what is it? i got to know. Because I want to make sure that that's what, where I I'm, I'm find myself. And when you find out, it's going to be real, real clear. And it's going to be a lot easier and more simple than you thought. Okay? It really is. And it's going to be able to give you ammunition when the devil wants to come and pistol whip you with that whole thing. Well, see, you're not good enough. God doesn't accept you. You, devil, take you and your pistol and get out of here. But I ain't buying it. I just don't buy it anymore. Okay. We must have put on the armor, garment that he has provided. That was understood in Jewish, under Jewish customs. They understood exactly what was going on here. That's why the Pharisees responded the way they did. Righteousness is signified in Scripture as... One, a garment. Number two, as a white linen garment that the priest wore underneath all the outward garment. Underneath all of that outward stuff that they put on, there was an inward garment that was made from head to toe, pants and tunic. White linen. It was the closest thing to their body was the righteousness of God. Was the closest thing to their body. And under Jewish law, you could not, a priest could not, or the people could not, especially the priests, could not wear blended garments. In other words, no polyester, no rayon, none of that stuff. It had to be linen. They could not have a blend of linen and wool. 100% linen had to be worn. It represented the righteousness of God that they stood when they stood before his presence as being completely righteous. Because only pure righteousness could stand before the presence of God. Okay? All right. And it's also represented by garment, by white linen, and number three, by breastplate. 
you and I put on in Ephesians 6, I believe it is, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And within the breastplate of the priest that he put on, he not only had the inner garment with the white, but he also had a white a breastplate, I believe, that was made out of pure gold. And it attached at the shoulders and was hung from him. And each one had a stone that represented the 12 tribes of Israel in it. Very distinct, but yet they all were made righteous. God seen them righteous in his eyes as they followed his command and his law. Okay? Anything that we put on outside the garment that God has provided us is telling God he must accept our goodness, good works, to accept us. Turn to Isaiah 64, 6. And, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to water this down so it doesn't sound as... as, as yucky as, as, it, as you may visualize it. But, but you have to get it. You have to get this. Because this is the kicker. Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all as unclean things. Okay? We are all unclean. Isaiah is talking from an old covenant statement. We're all unclean. What did unclean people have to do? They had to go around and chant, unclean, unclean, unclean. Okay? To let everybody know that was around them, to stay away from them. Because if they touched them, they too were, un they were made unclean. That's what makes the story of the woman with the issue of blood so amazing. Every person she touched pressing through that cloud, crowd was made unclean. And if Jesus was the person that the Pharisees wanted him to be, he'd have ran that person out of there and, look, and he'd have just read her a riot act about how unclean she made everybody by touching them. But that didn't bother him. Didn't bother him because he didn't see her that way. Self-righteousness sees us that way. Always unclean, not clean enough. All our unclean things and all our righteousness are as filthy rags and we do all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind has taken us away from God. Just like the wind. Now, you can look this up for yourself. It's not something that I inferred myself. <clears throat> that, word, that word filthy rags, if you look it up, in, even in, I believe it's the complete Hebrew Bible. <clears throat> in the complete Hebrew, Jew, a complete Jewish Bible, it is minstrel rags. Anything that we can offer God in the form of substitute blood for Jesus Christ, he sees as a dirty, filthy, menstrual rag. That's why he went after that guy the way he did. The world wants to offer menstrual rags as a substitute for the blood of Jesus just doesn't work people it doesn't work 
It's never going to be accepted. It never did and never will. So you say, Tony, well, what is it that makes me righteous? We're going to end it with this right now. Real quick. We're going to, it, you know, I built this up to this. I probably could have told you right at the beginning of the service, but we have to see the magnitude of this thing. When people want to tell you that their good works is going to get them into heaven, you can walk them through this whole thing. And, and, and if they receive it, they'll change the way they think right on the spot. <clears throat> okay. Through the substitutionary work of the cross, by shedding of the blood, his blood, Jesus made access to the Father possible. When the curtain came down, ripped in two at his death, we became acceptable. Romans 4 is a clear explanation of how that was made possible through the life of Abraham. It gives us an old covenant example of a new covenant truth. That like Abraham, we receive our righteousness apart from works as an act of the grace of God's the, the grace of God through the imputation by faith. Read Romans chapter 4. Abraham was made righteous because he believed God. And it was imputed unto him as righteousness. You and I become righteous the moment we believe that God's son, his blood at the cross, what happened on Good Friday made me righteous. That's what makes me righteous and acceptable for God before God. So the next time the enemy wants to come around dancing in your brain that you got to act better, you got to do better. Well, you do, but that doesn't make you acceptable. God doesn't kick you out of the room. You're loved just as much then and now as you were prior at your best moment. I always tell people, God loves you just the same at your best moment and at your worst moment. It doesn't change. His acceptability of you doesn't change. Those things, the behaviors have to change, but those behaviors, given the fact that you continue to rely upon the grace of God and yield yourself as members to righteousness, will produce that, and those things will begin to change as you yield to that. But if you're going to insist that I get to keep and stay the same, keep, I can continue to live like I am, and just say, it's the grace, it's the grace, it's the grace. You don't understand grace, just like you didn't understand righteousness. We'll have to do the teaching on grace, or you can get the book and read it. Okay? <clears throat> okay, so it makes that clear. Romans chapter 4, I encourage you to read it. Read Romans chapter 4. Make it real clear. Okay, so what does this word imputed or imputation mean? It literally means to write down in ledger. It's, it's an accounting term, okay? It's a word that they're using in accounting. It's settling of one's account of a debt owed. But, but let's take it even a step further in what Jesus' blood did, okay? Let's take it a step further. It's ascribing righteousness 
to someone by virtue of, of the righteousness found in another, but not found in the recipient. Come on. Come on. We've ascribed Jesus' righteousness that was never found in us, and it was imputed to us because we dared to believe God. We dared to do that. And he gave that to us by grace. It's nothing we could attain in ourselves. That's what grace says, tells us. It's a place that I get to be and go that I could never attain in myself. Do you think I could be here doing this right now on my own? It's the furthest thing from my mind back when I was 18 years old. The furthest thing from my mind. I could have never done this. That's only one thing. Okay, let's wrap this up. Matthew 5, 20. And then we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 5 and we're going to go into a declaration, okay? Matthew 5.20 says this. No, it doesn't. Oh, yes, it does. What I wanted to, where I was going. For I say unto you. He said this early in his ministry. This is on the Beatitudes. It's on the Mount. It's on the Sermon on the Mount. He said it real early in his, his, his sermon. I, wa- I wonder if anybody referenced that back. That except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall know in no case. Read that in up. It shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Can't be clearer than that, folks. Jesus said it himself, I did. Our righteousness has to exceed that of the earth. Well, their righteousness wasn't anything to write over about. Okay? So what he was talking about was the righteousness that he was going to provide for us. That takes us to 2 Corinthians. And we probably all have quoted this before. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Second Corinthians five twenty one. This is about if any man be in Christ, it's probably if any man be in Christ, he can be crucial and he can walk in the world and all things that become come of God, and those things are of God that can be coming. Okay? I think it's also talking about
get to become righteous. When you talk to people about it, you get to become righteous now. Part of that reconciliation process. Okay? Let's go on and see. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, though God did teach you by us. We pray you in Christ's name, be ye reconciled to God. For he has not made him, who's the him here? Who is the him? Jesus. He has not made, so replace the him with Jesus. For he has not made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in, who's the him again? Jesus. Praise be to the Lord. I wanted to pull my Bible to your attention, but I was sure that I would tonight and get rid not operate in fear, but I didn't want to trust myself. Okay? Yeah. We become the righteousness of God in Him. So, why are you righteous? Because of what He did for me on the cross. Now, what about my good works? Where are all these good works? Where are all the works of righteousness? Where do they fit in? What are the works that this righteousness that I, I, I imputed from God, a righteousness that was not found in me, but was found in Him? What, what, what are they, what, what's all that about? It's not what we did in terms of good works to become righteous. It is what we believe, who we believe, that righteousness by faith is imputed to us. Christians have misappropriated the purpose of good works. We've misappropriated the purpose of good works. Early on in Jesus' ministry, same Sermon on the Mount, he said this. <clears throat> Let your lights so shine before men so that they might see your good works and know that you are righteous. No, he didn't say that. If they could, that's what he would have said. But he said this, So let your light so shine before men. The righteous, the works that righteousness will produce, let it shine before men, so that they will glorify God. Which is in heaven. Points to God. Your good works don't point to you how good you are to make you acceptable to God. It points other people to God so they can find out how good God is. Okay? That's what righteousness is, folks. It's real simple, isn't it? When you understand it and you break it down and you understand it the way Jesus taught it, you understand what righteousness is and you can differentiate in your own life the difference between righteousness and self-righteousness. Right? And you can differentiate it in other people's lives. Now, don't go around and say, oh, you're just self-righteousness and start running the whole rap on it. No. That's, that doesn't do any good. What we do is we try to walk them down the trail. And if you can walk them down the trail biblically, it has a better chance Alright, let's stand together. Put one hand on our head, one on our heart. We're going to do uh, four things and then I'm going to let you go. Okay? Not going to take long at all. Not
Okay, as we're standing with our hand on our head, their hand in our heart, we're not going to rub our heart and pat our head at the same time. No, we're not going to do that. Okay, we're going to say, we are going to, we're going to talk to Jesus about opening the way we, uh, I am open to changing the way I think to drastically affect what I believe. I want you to talk to Jesus about that for a moment. Father, I open the way I think so that I can, Lord, drastically change the way I believe. Yeah. Yes, Jesus. Okay. Next thing we're going to declare. <clears throat> I ask the Holy Spirit. You can just repeat after me. I ask the Holy Spirit to guide me in all truth as he promised to and that that truth will make me free. Amen. Freedom is great when it comes from the Holy Spirit. Third thing. I reaffirm and assure myself that because I am a child of God when I by faith Receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. At that moment, I took on His righteousness as my settlement of my sin debt. And I stand acceptable in the sight of God. Folks, right now, amen. We reassure ourselves, Holy that we are in the wedding garden. And there is no, we are the wedding feast. And there is no chance of us getting bound and gagged and tied and thrown out into utter darkness because we have on the linen garment of righteousness. We have on the wedding garment. Last declaration. I change the way I think with regard to good works. I no longer look at them as a way of finding my acceptance with God. But I see them as a sign and a way to point others to you.